few summers that I was in high school, I was able to go to a state park in West Virginia called Pipestem. It was always one of my favorite times of the year because we would go camping and my family doesn't like camping except for me, which meant that it was just me and my friends and their families. Two of my best friends throughout high school and their families. And if I didn't like what one family was having for dinner, I'd go over to the next campsite and I'd see what they were having. It was, it was a good time. But there were many times when you're camping, when you get bored. There's only so much you can do at a campground. You can sit around and talk. You can take naps in a hammock and you can get bored, really, is what I discovered. And that's what happened that year, is that all the teens got bored. And we decided we were gonna play a game to combat this boredom. And it ended up being a game of hide and go seek. We were playing hide and seek at the lodge that was at the campground, a beautiful lodge, really two towers and connecting them was this hallway that was practically made exclusively out of glass. Just beautiful. Just just been renovated, brand new roof on it. It was a great place to play hide and go seek. And all of this morphed into playing sardines in which one person hides and everyone else tries to find them and then hide with them. Well, during the course of playing sardines, someone, I'm not sure who, found an open door. That's not a problem. It's what was written on the door. What was written on the door was employees only. You see, that was a problem. And after they had walked past that door, they found another open door with the same sign and then up to a third door also open which read as well employees only but it was what was behind that third door that was most intriguing it was a ladder that led up to a roof hatch which was open And so we did what obviously needed to be done. It was raining and the roof hatch needed to be closed. So a whole gaggle of us scaled the ladder and found ourselves upon the roof in the rain. And after we had fooled around up there for five or so minutes, everyone started descending the ladder once again. And I was the last one on the roof and as I'm descending the ladder, very carefully looking at my feet so that I don't slip my feet hit solid ground and I turn around expecting to see my friend and instead of my friend I see a park ranger and the first words out of my mouth are did you see where the others went? he shrugs his shoulders and I walk through the first door, the second door, the third door and uh, then I start sprinting I meet up with the rest of the gang who had been split up into two parties as they had fled the scene of the crime and then the chase began. The one group that was 
pinned in, we shall say, in the lodge, was being discussed over radio. And they're sending us text updates about what is going on while the rest of us flee to the hills. Pretty soon, we're not just being chased, but they identified some of the culprits that were in the lodge and the interrogation began. And they interrogated one or two people and everything was okay until they got to the youngest sister. And the youngest sister ratted us out in a heartbeat. Now granted, those of us who were not at the lodge, not being interrogated, had been living in fear for almost three hours by now. And it's about one o'clock in the morning and we're curled up in our tents trying to figure out what they are going to do when they catch us. All of a sudden, we see a bright light on the outside of the tent. And a voice saying, is anybody in there? Myself, Andrew, and Alex, we look at each other. No one willing to answer. Finally, the oldest one in the tent says, who's there? Son, I need to talk to you. Would you come out for a second? And thankfully, we escaped with just a minor telling off. But we learned something very valuable that day. It's that you cannot avoid the eyes of the ranger. The song is true. The eyes of the ranger are upon you. Any wrong you do, he's going to see. When you are in West Virginia, look behind you. Because that's where the ranger is going to be. I can think of hundreds of things in life that are unavoidable, just like the eyes of a ranger. The chirp of a smoke alarm battery at 2 a.m. Car trouble when you're already running late for work. Awkward family pictures at Thanksgiving that take entirely too long. Getting stuck next to someone eating the stinkiest food you've ever smelled in your life while you're on a long flight. Or having to call your grandparents when your computer won't start. There are many things in life that are unavoidable. But here's the thing. We still try to avoid them. In our text this morning, we find two kinds of people who are looking to avoid something that is entirely unavoidable. Look with me, Matthew chapter 2. We'll read in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so privileged to be able to open your word this morning. Would you help us as we do so? Help us to understand what it contains for us, what lessons we can take from the story that we are so familiar with. Would you help us now as we dive deep into your word? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 
When Herod heard the news of the birth of a king, he was troubled. He was agitated, like taking a bottle of dirty water with all of that dirt at the bottom and swirling it up so that all the dirt that had settled muddies the waters. That's the state of Herod's soul when he hears of this king. Herod was troubled. After all, his name in Hebrew means to tremble. He viewed this little toddler named Jesus as a usurper, a threat to his throne, and he trembled. Herod was troubled. You see, Herod couldn't handle there being a second king in Jerusalem. Herod was a power-hungry puppet king installed by Rome. He was king in order to help keep the peace, but Herod knew that if there was another king, there would be no peace, especially if that king was the king of the Jews. So this power-hungry puppet king desperately tries to avoid Jesus' reign. But so long as a king is alive, you cannot avoid his reign. So Herod was troubled. Because he was so deeply troubled, Herod began to scheme. There was only room for one king in Jerusalem, and Herod would ensure he was it. Look at verse 7. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. But we know this isn't Herod's true intention. It's this cunning lie meant to engender trust with the very men who would lead him to his rival. But God's sovereignty would not allow for his plans to be thwarted by a puppet king like Herod. So he protects his son and the family through a dream. Verse 12. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Herod was scheming, but God was sovereign. Herod knew he could not avoid the reign of Jesus, so he hatched another plan. If I can't avoid him, I must do something else. So he hatched another plan, a diabolical plan. And you know the story well. If I can't avoid him, then I will annihilate him. To Herod, this toddler king was nothing more than a nuisance. A rodent needing extermination. After all, murder is what Herod did best. This invasive toddler king would meet the same fate as Herod's favorite wife, three of his sons, and his in-laws. When a problem grows too big, Herod resorts to murder. Herod was troubled, so he moves forward with this unimaginably wicked plan. He exterminates, murders countless little boys in an attempt to avoid the king. Oh yes, Jesus was only a toddler. 
He didn't pose any threat at that time. But precious princes grow to become powerful kings. So Herod, in his quest to avoid the king, annihilates an entire generation of young boys, all because he was troubled. This is how scripture puts it in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Now, as absurd as this might sound, Herod deserves some credit. Herod understood something that cultural Christians do not understand. There is only room for one king. Herod didn't bring this child king into his home and think fondly of him. Herod didn't identify with this child and speak well of him. Herod didn't run to this child for advice and value his wisdom in times of distress. No, Herod didn't do any of this. Why? Because Herod knew that there's only room for one king. Cultural Christianity minimizes that truth, relegating Jesus to a mere puppet king. Oh, Christ can sit on the throne, but when he interferes with my priorities, my agendas, my well-being, he has to go. Cultural Christianity sees the benefits of identifying with the king of kings and invites him to be part of life. But unlike Herod, it doesn't realize that when you recognize a king, you are no longer in charge. So inevitably, when cultural Christians realize that both self and Christ cannot be king, that they, they cannot avoid the reign of the king, then just like Herod, they have to remove this king who seeks to usurp the throne of the heart. This precious prince would grow to become a powerful king, so Herod was troubled. Question is, though, are you like Herod? Contemplating the logical outcome of a kingdom with two opposing kings, seeking to squelch the conquest that the king of kings is leading against your heart. You cannot avoid this king. Herod was troubled by this reality, and so he chose to wage war against his divine opposition because of it. Are you like Herod? You cannot claim Christ as your king and then exalt self as king. There is only room for one king, and that truth troubled Herod. Herod chose one way people seek to avoid the king, and it's by annihilation. But there is a second way people seek to avoid the reign of Christ. As heinous and as despicable as Herod's actions were, they are expected from a man who lives for the world. It logically makes sense. If you cannot make peace with the king, then you must make war. 
Jesus' presence in Jerusalem removed the possibility for peace, so Herod waged war. It's the way of kings, just as it is, just as it is the way of the world. But this passage reveals a more startling reality than the quest to annihilate a king. The second half of verse 3 reveals some who felt the same dread as Herod, but they did not have nearly as good of an excuse for that dread. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. It makes sense for a pagan king to dread opposition to his reign. But why would the people of God, all Jerusalem, dread the coming of the promised Messiah? Even Christ's very existence as a tiny toddler caused Jerusalem to tremble. And so in his quest to better understand this vermin king invading his land, Herod turns to his secret weapon, the, re the religious leaders, to learn more about this promised king. But as it turns out, these religious leaders sought to avoid the king for longer than Herod. The very ones Herod turned to in order to find out about this promised king were the very ones seeking to avoid him the most. These priests, scribes, and Pharisees, they knew what was prophesied about Jesus. They had been in the temple and in the synagogues since they were young. They knew of this promised Messiah. The words that they had heard from the early days of childhood were lodged into their memories. But they didn't have to rely on their memories anymore. Because of their prominence and status in this religious community, these men readily had access to the scriptures. If they wanted, they could grab the scroll and bring it to Herod. Do you see right here? This is what it says. He will be born in Bethlehem. But they didn't need the scroll. Turn it backwards, turn it upside down, roll it up all together. It doesn't matter. They knew the promises of the Messiah like the back of their hand. But you, Bethlehem and the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. By their own admission, Jerusalem was the ruler. Jerusalem would produce the ruler and shepherd of the people. But in their minds, they didn't need a shepherd. I already know the law. Why do I need someone to guide me? I already have power in society. What do I need a ruler for? These religious leaders knew the scriptures, but they wouldn't bow their knee. They declared the Christ child, the ruler and the king, yet they still wanted to avoid his reign. Why? Because this perfect prophet would turn their world upside down. Who needs a priest when you can have the high priest? Who needs a Pharisee when you can have this perfect prophet? 
The religious elite were troubled at the birth of the king, but as he grew and challenged their authority, their restlessness turned to rage. Just like Herod, just like Herod, they plotted against the Lord in an attempt to avoid his reign, but their strategies were far more refined. They sought to avoid him by catching him breaking the law, getting him into political conflict, getting him to blaspheme. But he was too perfect to break the law, too wise to find himself in political battle, and so fully God he could not blaspheme. The world will always operate like the world as they seek to avoid Christ's reign. But the religious, as refined as they may be, also buckle under the authority of the king. Just like the religious elite in Jerusalem, the religious of today's age say, If I can't avoid his authority, I'll slander his character. God isn't loving. If he was, he wouldn't have allowed me to be stuck in this family. God isn't selfless. All he wants is for people to worship him. That's a megalomaniac. God isn't merciful. If he was, he wouldn't send people to hell. God isn't kind. If he was, he wouldn't allow bad things to happen to good people. However, at the end of it all, God's character shines through all the accusations. His character cannot be tarnished by the mere words of men. So the religious, after finding that their refined tactics don't work, they develop another plan. The religious elite were troubled, so they too turned to murder. The very ones who should have been rejoicing at the coming of the Messiah were rioting because he challenged their man-made religion. The ones who should have been praising their Savior were plotting his murder. Their piety could not hold that they wanted to avoid the rule and reign of Christ. But here's the issue. You are not immune from seeking to avoid Christ's unavoidable reign in your life. You don't resort to murder, but you still seek to avoid the implications of his rule. You sequester slivers of your life and annex them away from Christ's rule. At work, your bonus is based on performance. Performance is heavily incentivized, and so the temptation to fudge the numbers weighs on you. But it's okay, because Jesus is king of the rest of your life. He won't miss that one sliver that you have stolen from him. At home, you excuse your behavior towards your spouse or siblings because of how they treat me not realizing that Christ owns that sliver of your heart as well. At school, your teachers and your parents push you so hard to succeed that you bend the rules until you can succeed. And so your work isn't entirely your own. 
And so what happens is that you begin to treat God like a a cosmic slot machine. If I keep giving him some of my devotion, then he will bless me. He must bless me. If I give him my devotion, I get to pull that lever. And when I hit the jackpot, all the winnings are mine. I can do with them whatever I want. To you, he is mostly king. But there are parts of your life that he isn't allowed to touch. Your work, your family, your money, your relationships, your time, it's off limits. He can be king of Sunday, but nothing more. And so in a nutshell, you respond to the unavoidable king the same way Herod and the religious elite did. He's unavoidable, but you seek to avoid him anyway because you are troubled. But this is the thing. Because Christ's reign is unavoidable, you must adore him instead. I'm not sure what picture you have in your mind for what scene the wise men came to on that night. But we have taken the nativity scene and and really romanticized it. Last year, I was in several live nativities, and, and there were spotlights on all the key figures. There was a literal glow around baby Jesus because of the lighting. The animals were well-behaved because their handlers were there with treats and with hay. The participants are buzzing with excitement, depending on how cold it is, to get involved. And there's cheerful Christmas music in the background, and it's this calm, picturesque scene. And we have romanticized this scene so much to fit our expectations that we have effectively lost what it truly was. And besides, the Magi didn't come to that manger scene. The Magi came to worship a toddler king. Jesus was somewhere between one and two years old. He wasn't this this month-old baby that you can't help but ooh and ah over. The Magi traveled hundreds, if not thousands of miles to come to the royal city of Jerusalem, only to find out that this promised king was not to be born in the royal city, but in the rural village. So they have to continue their travels even further to tiny Bethlehem. And they find this poor, average-looking toddler. But from the very beginning, from the very beginning, their intent was to adore the king, not to avoid him. Look at Matthew 2, verse 2. The wise men said this, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Although their plan had been to worship him, I'm sure they were slightly startled to see he was as young as he was. For most of us, the thought of children doesn't bother us. In fact, the thought of children probably brings wonderful feelings towards us. But we don't have the same view of children that the Jews had, particularly Jewish men. 
Even Jesus' disciples struggled to see the worth of children. In Mark 10, this is what happens. There's this scene, and parents are, are pushing their children towards Jesus so that he might bless them. And it says, Then they brought little children to him, that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. The disciples didn't get it. They didn't see the value of children. The disciples acted mostly like guard dogs, chasing away the kids from Jesus. Get your grubby fingers off of him. Don't you know who he is? Kids, don't be a nuisance to Jesus. But the Magi treated this child differently than the disciples treated children. They travel an exceedingly great distance to a tiny little town where they find an average-looking toddler. And what is their response? They adore him. See, this is what we find out about the wise men. The wise men were not wise because they navigated using the cosmos. The wise men were not wise because they tactfully tiptoed their way into power. The wise men were not wise because they procured immense wealth for themselves. And the wise men were wise because they humbly chose to adore the king. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When the Magi finally made it to the home of this king, they worshipped him and offered him lavish gifts. These men who had traveled so far were met by a toddler and they adored him still. But here's the part that makes you scratch your head. This child had done nothing for them since his birth. He hadn't granted them lands or power or wealth, or fame. But they still lavish gifts upon him. I have a niece who's a little over a year old. Everly doesn't do much because she's only a little over a year old. She destroys towers that you build, and she says, Dada and Mama. But beyond that, Everly doesn't do much. But in just a few weeks, she will have an entire new set of clothes, a full chest of toys, and books galore. Even though Everly hasn't done much, even her gifts make some sense because she is family and her family loves her. But the Magi weren't visiting this long lost cousin and making up for all the gifts that they couldn't give him on his birthdays. No, this child wasn't related to them. He wasn't even of the same nationality as them, not the same religion. 
He wasn't anything to them at all besides a prediction they read. But unlike the others in Jerusalem, they recognized that Jesus was the unavoidable king that deserved their adoration. So here's my question. What are you going to do this Christmas to adore the king rather than avoid him? It should start with a self-evaluation of your life. Are you currently avoiding his reign in any area of your heart? Are there nooks and crannies of your heart that you hold back not wanting him to meddle with? As the unavoidable king, he deserves your whole heart. And anything you seek to hold back from him is as fruitless as Herod's and the religious elite's attempts to avoid Christ's reign. Further than that, the Magi gave extraordinary gifts to this child who had not done anything for them. How much more should you give this king who has done everything for you? How will you adore him? Let me offer a few suggestions. First, consider focusing on the names of Christ in Scripture this Christmas season. There are at least 50 names for you to consider of how Jesus relates to you. Consider how Christ is the Prince of Peace and how he grants you peace. Then spend time rejoicing in the peace that he gives. Second, consider sharing the joys of Christmas with others. The Magi rejoiced with exceeding great joy. That's a, a joy you can't contain. News you just have to share. Share the joyous news of Christmas with others. But what will you do to better adore Jesus this Christmas? Perhaps you're here this morning and feel a bit like the wise men. You think Jesus deserves some of your affection, but you're not really sure what he has done for you. In reality, it's, it's simple, but it is incredibly deep. Jesus, God in the flesh, came to earth to die. He was born to give his life as a ransom, a, a price of purchase for your soul. The reason this king, Jesus, had to die in your place was because of your sin. Your sin means you deserve condemnation, separation from God. But you can't fix that problem on your own. The only one who could fix it was Jesus. And he fixed it by living a life without sin and sacrificing himself to bear the punishment that your sins deserved. He died for you and he rose to life to defeat the power of sin and death. If you admit to God that you're a sinner who deserves his judgment and ask for Jesus' sacrifice to be applied to your heart, then you can be saved from the punishment of your sins. 
this Christmas? Will you be like Herod, blinded by fear and rage by an invading king? Will you be like the religious elite with great knowledge in your mind, but no grace in your heart? Or will you be like the Magi, humbling yourself and adoring the King? Father, again, we are grateful for your word. We pray that your spirit would take your truth and would prod our hearts to action. Would you help us to love your son more, to be like him? Father, we don't want to avoid Jesus, the rightful king, but so often that is what we end up attempting to do. Would you help us to realize that his reign is unavoidable and instead would you help us to adore him all the more? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.